BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, oh my gosh, it's a huge one, Jay Bentley from the band Bad Religion, briefly of TSOL, briefly of Wasted Youth, but all that and more, Epitaph Records, of course, is on the show today. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. There's also a Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash turnedoutapunk. Both of those are run by my brother and show producer, guest booker, Tristan Abraham. Thank you, Tristan, for all your hard work here on the show. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me at various forms of social media at left for Damien. If you'd like to support this show, the best way of doing that is by telling all your friends, let everyone, you know, that would like this thing, know that this thing is out there. Also, you can subscribe to it and rate it on your podcast listening platform of choice. But speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans. Vans came on board a couple years ago and said, do what you do, Damien, book who you want to book talk to you want to talk to we just don't want you to lose money while you do it and then they have been supporting me ever since they also have coming up here the big last final finale for the chicago house of vans this summer and they're going out with a bang converge and cloud nothings will be playing the house of vans on october or sorry august 24th uh get your tickets get on the guest list now because i will be there and it will be a blast Oh, I love going to those things, and I cannot think of two two better bands, two more different bands, but two better bands to see share the stage. I'm, well, I'm amped. I'm amped for this one, and that is all coming up. All right, uh, I guess actually the last thing I got to talk about is coming up next week, also on the 24th, The Wrestlers will be premiering on MTV Canada. So if you are in Canada, you will finally have your opportunity to see The Wrestlers. And it's going to be like a 
a deluge of episodes. We're going to try and show all the episodes in like the span of four weeks. So uh, I'll have more on that next week on the show. But get ready. Set those PVRs. MTV Canada. I got banned from MTV. That's why this is so awesome to me. I was told that I was banned from MTV. You know, when, when Fucked Up played there the second time and the bathroom got destroyed, they said, that's it. You're done. Goodbye, son. And look who returns. Look who returns. Of course, I was on Mitch Music in the interim. And, I, you know, you could say, oh, they're owned by the same company, blah, blah, blah. But I consider this the true end of the banning. So that will be starting next week at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All right. I think that's it. I think that's it for the housekeeping stuff. Uh, Fucked Up's coming to Australia, too. But that's not till October. Yeah. That's it. On to today's show. Today on the show, we have Jay Bentley. Now, Jay Bentley is familiar to a lot of people from the band Bad Religion. And Bad Religion, of course, will be playing the huge, massive, massive show that's going down this weekend, Psycho Las Vegas, which happens as of tonight. So if you're listening to this when it comes out, uh, you you gotta you gotta get down there because there's like incredible bands playing tonight. But over the next few days in Las Vegas, it's not too late to get a last not too late to get a last minute flight. You know, if you're if you're somewhere close, you can just drive. But I mean, like if you're someone like me in Toronto, Canada, you can get a last minute flight, and you're gonna want to do this because Electric Wizards playing, Clutch is playing, Godspeed You Black Emperor, and the original Misfits are playing. Now, I don't know <laughs> if I can think of a more uh, things I never thought would happen in my life. Godspeed you black emperor playing with the original misfits together. Like that is mind blowing. Also Mogwai's playing, uh, high on fire beach house, uh, uncle acid glass jaw, the faint cold cave. There's more like I'm, I'm just scratching the surface. Like every band you could possibly imagine just about is playing this thing this weekend. And because of it, we have a member of Bad Religion on the show. Jay Bentley stopped by here before he headed out to Las Vegas this weekend. And, you know, I'm glad he did because this is someone who I would uh, always have talked about wanting on the show. And thankfully, my brother listens up and hears these things and goes out and books them because Jay to me, oh, I've always wanted to meet this guy. I met him, you know, I've met him over the years just backstage at various shows. I think we even toured. No, I know we did tour with Bad Religion on one of those giant Australian festival tours years ago. So he's someone that I've been around, always seemed like a really nice guy. And yeah, you will hear the fruits of Tristan's labor right now. This is a really fun conversation with someone who who walked away from Bad Religion only to get sucked back in. Uh, also has some really interesting opinions about the Into the Unknown record, a record that I don't think is that bad. You know, a lot of people hate it, but I, I happen to not think it's that bad. Uh, as far as corrections for this episode, there is one. I was recording this from Lauren's aunt's place. I say my aunt's place. It wasn't my aunt's place. It was Lauren's aunt's place. Uh, thank you, Barbara, for letting me record there. Uh, that's it, though. Uh, I'm not going to blather on anymore. So head out, buy your plane ticket right now, pause this thing, buy your plane ticket to uh, Psycho Las Vegas, get on the plane, go out there and get ready for this insane festival. Like, it's crazy, like, who's playing this thing. It's like, it's like literally every band you could think of. And it's at the Mandalay Bay Casino, so you get to, to chill out, relax. I think there's a pool party, too. Imagine a pool party with, like, Glenn Danzig and people from Godspeed there. Like, that, that's a... Uh, it's like a best show sketch right there. Uh, but this is happening for real. 
Um, so book your plane ticket, get ready to go to uh, to Las Vegas, and then listen to this on the plane. And if you're not going to Las Vegas, just keep letting this play. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Jay Bentley on Turned Out a Punk. Jay, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, 100%. Damien, where are you calling for real? I'm calling from actually the middle of nowhere in Ontario right now, but normally I'm calling from Toronto, Canada. That's fair enough. I was just, I was just curious where this was coming from. No, this time I'm actually calling from my aunt's family's place in the middle of nowhere, so it's hence why I'm calling you late because it's a lot more dark and quiet than I'm used to, so a lot more conducive to falling asleep with the kids. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. 7.30, the sun's down and you're just gone. Like, later, what happened? I don't know. Some went down. Some went down and I'm no, I'm no longer a vampire. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I've, I'm, I've uh, had to admit that I'm, I'm fallible now. I'm, I'm susceptible to sleep in my old age. <laughs> my new best friend. <laughs> well, I'm going to start this off the way I start them all off, which is, Jay, how'd you get in a punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Uh, yeah, I, um, I had a friend who I went to school with who had an older brother. Uh, who had a uh, him and his friend had a heavy metal magazine called Raw Power, and this is in Woodland Hills, California. Mm-hmm. And so his brother had an extensive music collection, and he would take uh, us as little kids to like Rick Derringer and um, Blackie Lawless, who was in Wasp, was in a band called Sister. He would just take us to these random weird shows to like as little kids. I don't really know why, but it was funny <laughs> now that I look back at it. Uh, but, you know, because he was a music guy, and so he obviously had the Sex Pistols in 76 when it came out. And we played it, but we played it along with Legs Diamond and all sorts of other stuff. So it did really uh, have the impact of like, wow, this is totally different. It was gnarly. Uh, um and I remember hearing bodies and going, "This he's saying fuck, that's so gnarly. This guy's actually saying fuck on this record. And, that song, uh, too. It's like something about that song, the stop in it. Like, it's just out of all the songs yeah, on that record. I, I think the weird part was, is at that time, um, you know, looking back at how the Sex Pistols are, are thought about and knowing what hardcore punk rock is now, you look, listen to the Pistols. And it kind of fit in with a lot of other stuff that was going on that wasn't necessarily punk. It was kind of just a a rebellious MC5 rock, Iggy Pop kind of thing going on. You know what I mean? Other than the imagery of Sid and the, and the whole uh, visual thing, if you were just listening to the music, it was like, okay, this, this goes along with every other sort of rebellious rock and roll thing that's happening. Um, I, I would say, except for that song, maybe because that song, like except, as you're saying, was a well, no, word. right? Except for except for that song, because it was all of a sudden. This is this is something that I wasn't really prepared to hear. Like I didn't <laughs> yeah. know what was coming. I, I, you know, I wasn't warned. I was just just a you know 14 year old kid going, "What? <laughs> this is crazy." <laughs> um, and then uh, my friend who lived right behind me, his father was uh, an accountant for Chrysalis Records. And so he used to get all these like test pressings from Virgin and all these, you know, bands that were coming out of England that no one had any idea who they were really super underground stuff. And so I just, I'm thinking now that I was just finding that I was really into music and it Mm -hmm. wasn't necessarily just punk rock. 
Um, but that same friend uh, in the in October of '79 took me in his car uh, to see the Clash at the Hollywood Palladium, and so that was I was 15, and this was like the first punk show I'd been to. I'd seen Quiet Riot, I'd seen Kiss, you know, I'd seen bands, but I'd never been to a quote-unquote punk rock show. Mm-hmm. And I got into the pit, and I was at the front of the stage, and I said, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened, ever. Mm-hmm. And so that was really, when I, on the drive home, I said, this is it, this is for me, this is, this is totally going to be it. Well, I guess before we go from this point, I get going back, with a ma- name like Raw Power, it seems like that magazine would probably be, you know, more of the Stooges kind of band, but like... You know, was it just kind of all over the map in hard rock and heavy metal? It was, was it? It, it was, it was all over the map. It was just, you know, it was, it was closer to a fanzine than a magazine. It was obviously just two high school guys that were, that were into music and they were putting out their magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, I, I think what their intention was is to stay away from anything that was, would be considered popular. Okay. They were just really, <laughs> my they kind were of magazine. Really, Right. They were really into whatever was the underground scene. They were they wanted to like talk about the bands that people were ignoring. Would they ever talk about like uh, Zolar X or the Wigglers or any of those kind of underground LA bands? I I wouldn't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I ever even read the magazine. I was just I just knew what they did. I was like, I don't care about you guys. You guys are dumb. <laughs> they were they were older than me, so Screw those guys. But that's uh, all. They were super early into the fanzine thing. Like Greg Shaw would have been doing Bomp like just a few years correct. earlier, right? You know, I mean, look, you know, when you're, when you're, how old was I? I was 13. You yeah. don't really think about that someone is doing something uh, important. You don't think <laughs> about that. Yeah. And I, I like that word because I've, I've had people actually say to me about Bad Religion and Epitaph, hey, man, that's really cool that you guys were like embracing the DIY ethic. And I look at these people like, are you fucking high? It's not, we didn't embrace shit. There wasn't anything else to do. <laughs> yeah. What are you talking? There wasn't a choice. Hey, man, we can either do DIY and be cool or just sell out. <laughs> There's no choice. <laughs> we, we made a demo like everybody else and shopped it. And every single label that we went to said, you guys suck. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it worked out in everyone's favor, though. Like, I'm glad. I'm glad that rejection happened. Yeah, I mean, eventually, it's it's it's, uh, you know, it's it's been a great it's been a great ride. It's still Mm -hmm. going, uh, but yeah, it's been a great ride. Oh, I forgot. There was one other thing that happened when I was uh, summer winter of oh god, what was that? That must have been. like January or February of 78, there was a television show uh, on like CBS in, in the States called like 1977, the year in review. And they dedicated like the last 10 minutes to these guys. And I was like, oh, this is really good. Cause now I had the visual. I was like, wait, what? Like, you know, just like showing them in airports. I'm like, you can't act like that, but they are. And I was like, oh, this is really something. I like this a lot. So where did you kind of go after seeing The Clash and, you know, you, you've now you've seen the Sex Pistols footage? Like, were you aware that stuff was happening around you or was it that still kind of going to come? Not really. I think what uh, – so then I'm, I'm 16 and I show up at school and I've cut my hair and dyed it black. And I show up at our high school, which is probably, I don't know, 12,000 students and there's me and greg graffin and that's it and we're like okay i guess it's us we're the we're the two dudes here 
And so we were just kind of hanging out together and, uh, and just kind of sitting around. But Greg knew a couple people outside of our school. And he was the one that said, hey, we're going to go to these shows. And so early on, it was like, we're going into L.A. We're going to go see this band, Black Flag. We're going to go see, you know, the Fear, the Circle Jerks, these kind of bands that were playing in clubs. So that was how we started realizing we had a local scene. Because up until then, you don't really think about your local bands. You just know the bands that you see on TV or that you read about in magazines. Mm -hmm. And you don't know what your local scene is until you get out there. Mm Mm-hmm. So were you aware of like Rodney on the Rock or any, were you listening to rock radio at that time? Uh, vaguely. You know, mm-hmm. I, it, you, you learn from other people. Oh, man, you don't listen to Rodney on the Rock on Sundays <laughs> and you're trying to be cool going, yeah, I do. I totally do. But you don't. Yeah. So, there was a lot of that back then. You know, people would say things and you'd just go, yeah, I totally know what that is. But you had no idea. Yeah. So, you know, everything was sort of word of mouth. Everything was... It was just me and Greg, and then you added one other kid that was in the valley, and they had two friends, and then all of a sudden there's five of you, and one of them said, man, you can't wear those shoes. You're like, why not? Those aren't cool. I didn't know. (laughs) And someone says, are you listening to Rodney on the Rock? No. It's like, well, you have to listen on Sunday. Oh, okay. And then everybody's listening on Sunday. Oh, man, did you hear that song from the adolescents who you like? They're one of us. They're our band. They're our friends. So that was... You know, it it literally was 15, 16-year-olds just sort of learning the world, just sort mm-hmm. of all growing up together in a really weird underground uh, way where the only the only lessons that we would learn for, were from each other because we everything was just sort of unfolding every day. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> what was, do you remember actually the first show you saw, like when you went to these local shows? Like the first show I saw was, was uh, Black Flag at the Hideaway. That was awesome. Who else played? Do you remember? Uh, I think the Circle Jerks were supposed to play. Whoa, but that they would have been a beef show. Um, the band uh, who played, uh, I can't, I think Mad Society played first, maybe. I might be wrong on that. But the, <laughs> there was a band called The Stains uh, that were cool. And they and they went on stage. They were like the third band on a five band bill. Mm-hmm. And the Stains went on stage, and they were supposed to play for like twenty minutes, and they wouldn't get off the stage. And the singer Ruby like pulled a knife, and people were trying to get them off. And I was just going, "This is the greatest thing ever." So Rudy wouldn't get off stage, and he had a knife, and he was wouldn't let anybody make them get off stage. And then somebody drove a car through the front door, and everybody came rushing in, and the show was over. It was like that was the greatest show I've ever seen. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. Uh, I've always heard the Stains were kind of like, you know, one of the harder bands. Yeah. I, I mean, I had no idea who anybody was. I'm like, okay, this is kind of cool. And and so it was just me and Greg. And we were, uh, you know, just kind of two guys that, that sort of knew a couple of people, but not really anybody. And we just kind of hung together. And and uh, and then... That all happened, and we all, when we driving home, we're like, that was the greatest thing that has ever happened, ever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so did Black Flag not play, I guess, in the end? No, they, just- they did not play. <laughs> they 100% did not play. <laughs> Mad Society had like a little kid in the band too, right? Correct, Stevie Metz and his oh. brother Louis. Stevie was maybe eight, <laughs> and so Stevie was eight, and Louis might have been like 13 – uh, Mark Vachon was probably 12 
and Aaron was probably 13, and Kathy, I, so Kathy was like Greg and I's age. We were 15, 16. So we were thought of as young kids, and then Mad Society was like super little kids. They were like, oh, man, these guys are little kids. And they live right across the street from Okie Dogs. So that was sort of how, they're, how they got here. Wow. So, like, who was bringing them to shows? Was it Kathy, their guitar player? Like, who was the... Like, I, th- I think so. I mean, I you know, everybody just got around with everybody. That's what we mm-hmm. learned about. Like, the more we got into this, the more we realized it was sort of the same 110 people that just kind of kept going to shows and kept seeing each other. It was always the same, you know, the same group of people would drive them around, would drive everybody around. There was always a one party apartment that like everybody went to. Okie Dogs was the place where everybody hung out. So they would get places the same way almost everybody else would. They would just everybody would hitch rides with guys that had big cars or vans. You know, go, given that you've gone around the world now and, and seen the world, is the Okie Dog the most disgusting thing you've ever eaten? God, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, is it I, I, disgusting? Yeah, one hundred percent disgusting, but certainly not the most disgusting thing I've ever eaten. No. <laughs> it, it might be this. It might be the strangest thing because it was put together by people who were like, "Here, here's some pastrami, sauerkraut, ham, and hot dogs in a tortilla. Have this." It's like, okay, why not? <laughs> I'm not saying it's not delicious. I'm saying it's gross in concept, but delicious uh, in execution. Yeah, no, conceptually gross. But I think when you're 15, 16, you'll eat anything. You're like, whatever. I, you know, I, I'll, I'll eat soup out of the can. I don't care. Yeah. Um, you know, it's we. This was the time when I think Brett and I would like go to the store and buy cans of spam <laughs> just to eat them. Like, what are you eating? Spam. Why? I'm not sure. <laughs> Um, so given that all these young kids are playing in bands around you, were you guys already playing music or was that to come a little bit later? Um, that came just like, like seconds later. I think Mm -hmm. Greg and I, Greg and I met at school and started going to shows probably within the first two months we were that, that hideaway show happened. Uh, and then Brett, uh, and Greg met through a mutual friend, Tom Clement, at a party. And Greg came back to school and said, hey, we're starting a band. And that was so the band started uh, maybe three months into that school year. Uh, I, I don't know if I really... No, we were we were hanging out in L.A. before the band started. And then we started the band. Because it mm-hmm. was... A, we, Greg and I were already kind of made some friends and then we were like, we're going to get a band. And everybody's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> you and everybody else. <laughs> so how did the first lineup come together of Bad Religion? Uh, well, the first lineup was Brett and Jay Ziskraut, who were in a band called the Quarks. And they recruited Greg as a singer and Greg recruited me as a bass player. And so that was the first lineup. And Brett had, Brett came in to Bad Religion initially with a few songs, and I think Greg wrote a couple. So they practiced without me, I don't know, three or four times. And then I came in, and then that was sort of where we got got the start and ended up, after bouncing around all of our houses, finding a place to practice, ended up in Greg's mom's garage because that was the only place we could really kind of soundproof as good as we could, and people didn't seem to care that we were there. <laughs> 
And you mentioned earlier getting turned down by all the labels around. Like, what were some of the labels you guys, did you like try Smoke 7 or like, what were some of the labels you wrote away to at first? God, I don't even remember. Honestly, I have no idea. Like, were the, was that like the aspiration though? Like, what, what, did you want to be a mystic band or was that something not even? Well, I, I, think we did, I think we just wanted to be a band that had a record out. I think that we yeah. didn't really, I, I don't think we, we didn't, we didn't have a plan. We just knew we were writing music and we said, okay, well, what do we made it? We made a tape and we knew that we wanted to make a record. We knew that we said, well, we're supposed to make a record. And we were talking about that before we'd even played a live show. We, we need to make a record. Um, so we had this tape and we shopped it around and, and, uh, I, you know, my memory of where we went isn't as clear as the day that we were sitting there with someone who said we weren't any good. Mm-hmm. And I, and Brett was there and Brett said, well, fuck this. We, we're going to go make our own record. And I was like, we can do that. That's what we're going to do. We're going to make them ourselves. And that's how that all started. So I remember that part of. Brett being fed up with people saying we weren't any good and, and him just saying, fuck it, we're going to make our own. And were the songs that wind up on that first Bad Religion 7-inch the same songs that were on the demo tape? Uh, there was a couple of different ones on the demo and the, and the, you know, the, 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 the quality was okay. Mm-hmm. I think uh, you know, Rodney played a couple of the songs because that ended up on, on his show via the Circle Jerks who took the tape in to see him. Uh, which was, I think that was the part where we thought that was weird. I mean, we were getting played on the radio and bringing these songs into to labels and they said, we weren't any good. And I put, we're on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're already on the radio with this crappy tape. It's like, what are you talking about? <clears throat> was it just like, like, do you think that it was just Rodney's, like, was it just a, such a saturation point for bands at that point? Or is it just because, you know, like, why wouldn't they sign you? I don't know. I mean, I, I I think if I if I had that tape and I listened to it now, and knowing what I know about like being a record producer or wanting to run a label, I would be like, this isn't any good. And it's quite possible that Rodney played it because we were a a local band. And Rodney, while his show was, uh, you know, it was a, a a a worldwide show of wherever punk was happening, he really did love his local L.A. plays. He'd like to. He liked to find new bands. That was mm-hmm. kind of his thing as well. So uh, him playing us because the Circle Jerks told him to. The Cir- if, if we had just sent Rodney the tape, he probably wouldn't have played it. But because it came in through the Circle Jerks, he was like, sure, I'll give these guys a spin. And, and how did you meet those guys? Just from playing show, or just hanging out locally and playing shows? Just hanging out locally. I think, I think Greg met Lucky first at a party uh, in the Valley. And Greg was saying, oh, I met this guy. He's a drummer from this band, the Circles Arts. I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. Those guys are cool. Um, and and then where did we go? We went – this was right before Group Sex came out, I think. And we went somewhere, and they had their record. I'm like, holy shit, they have a record out. <laughs> like, <laughs> With the flag single was already out by that point, right? You guys would have had that black flag single? Uh, uh, the uh, – Nervous Breakdown EP? I'm trying to think if we had that yet. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I mean, it's weird because my, my, first, my first L.A. music that I purchased was the Dickies and the Germs. 
and I know that's kind of out of sequence, but that was like, that was what I, I, maybe that's because that was what was at my store, my, my, yeah. you know, our record store. Uh, it wasn't, you couldn't get stuff like Black Flag or the Circle Trucks unless you went into Poser or somewhere in Hollywood because it was just, all that stuff was really underground. It was just not, there wasn't, there was no push for it and it didn't make it, you know, we're not that fucking far out in the valley, but it didn't make it all the way out there. You had to kind of go into Hollywood to buy it. And so you would find out about these things when you were in town, but then someone went, would have a tape and they go, oh, here's a tape of, here's a mixtape of all the bands. And you're all right. And that was in your car. And you're like, oh, no, no, this is what I play. I think that also speaks to like the importance of distribution, like something that later on when I was getting into punk, you know, Epitaph would be so important with, you know, like the fact that I could walk into a mall CD store and find like a Poison Idea record or, or find a Bad Religion record or find like, you know, it just, it was out there. It was accessible. When we, when we made our, when we, when we finally made the first seven inch, it was something that everybody remembered. Brett and I remembered how hard it was to get like indie stuff where we were. So we took these things and not only did we take them to our local store on consignment and just talk to the guys and say, Hey, can you just, you don't have to buy them, but if you take 10 and just put them on the shelf and we'll come back and see what happened, like fishing. But we also <laughs> went all the way down to Huntington beach and like, we went, we went pretty far away, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get a bigger reach. Cause we remember like, well, we can't seem to get anything cool out at our store. Cause I, you know, nobody was driving up to the Valley bringing their indie records. They were just sitting in Hollywood. So who would have been the inspiration to put out that first seven inch for Brett, you know, and like ultimately yourself, like what bands were you kind of looking at to kind of see this is the playbook or were you just kind of making it up as you went along? We were totally making that up. Wow. It looks yeah, like, so like good. We had, we, had, we like we, the, the reason that you can, we had no idea what we were doing is because everything was overblown. I mean, who makes a double gatefold seven inch that spins at 33? <laughs> exactly. With six songs on it. What the fuck are you thinking? <laughs> But that was, you know, we were just like, yeah, it's going to be cool. It's going to open up Gateful with a lyric sheet. And we can't fit six songs on, but we'll slow the record down to 33. Yeah. <laughs> All that stuff's crazy. <laughs> but it makes for such like an amazing record. Like it, it's, it's almost like that accident of not knowing what to do made for one of the better looking and, and aesthetically perfect records of that era and that scene. Yeah, I, I think that that. The one thing that we all can agree on is that we were uh, voracious fans of music, mm-hmm. and you know there there are there was a time before punk rock when you would you know you would just devour Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road double album and all of the artwork attached and just like spend hours looking at all this stuff. So we were always talking about like how important that was, mm-hmm. how much how much uh, how much the artwork meant and to not just blow it off as like a second thought like oh fuck it whatever just put the you know we're just going to put the record in this plastic thing and use a marker and write our name on it it's like no let's let's come up with a a label name because if you put it on bad religion records then it seems like nobody cares Mm -hmm. and if you if you make it sort of beautiful it will pop off the shelves and someone will go i want to look at that what is that versus just like oh here's just something with a with a post-it sticker on it it's like mm, nobody you know nobody wanted to see that so there was a lot of thought into what will help people want to pick this up yeah it's also amazing how much of the iconography is there from the first record you know like 
like from the Bad Religion logo to the Epitaph logo to even the font you're using for the name, like it's just which we stole from. We just we we stole the font from Black Flag. Oh, is it really it's the exact same <laughs> font? <laughs> yeah, totally. The red makes yeah, it look well, so I, much. I, different. I don't know if it's the exact same font. It it may not be the exact same font, but it's just Frisk Quadrata Bold. That's a, it's a pretty standard sort of <laughs> yeah. gothic looking font. Um, you know, I, and the Epitaph logo was cool. Brett came up with that, and I thought that was really bitching. Uh, the that that Crossbuster logo when Brett when Brett came with that, he said, "Look at this," and I said, "Yeah, that's really good. That's a really good thing to have." <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and, the, and then the the handwritten lyric sheet, just things that I don't I don't know how fifteen sixteen year old kids. I look at that and go, I don't know how we came up with that. Yeah. The only answer is like we just didn't know any better. <laughs> well, who were some of the aesthetic things? Like, like were you looking at Danger House stuff, or like once again, is that too Hollywood? Like, what stuff were you looking at as like sort of graphics inspiration for you guys? I, you know, honestly, I would have to say that it would still go back to like. Genesis and, and, and ELP and stuff that was not punk rock. It was because <laughs> punk rock records and especially bootlegs and indie stuff at the time was just, it was just a, a white sheet with a, with a Sharpie that said bad religion. And it's like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to buy that. All mm-hmm. of the, all of the, you know, the live bootlegs and stuff that I bought on vinyl, which is crazy. Uh, were just that they were just white. They were just white paper sheets with Sharpie on them that said Debo recorded in Akron, Ohio. Okay, but we didn't. You know, we we did know that we wanted it to be. Uh, I don't want to say meaningful. That's the wrong word. Deep depth. Have depth. Have some sort of. Um, you know, you open it and it was more than just one page. No, no page. No information, no idea what this is. I don't know what these songs are called. There's, you know, when like all of us felt like that, wanting more every time we opened up some indie band thing that just was incomplete. It was like I, I don't know who's on this. I don't know what the band is called. I don't know what these songs are called. I, I, so we wanted to we wanted to be informative, and mm. you know, it's funny now. I'm thinking that Brett one time said the hardest thing that he's ever had to do was put a lifetime of emotion into a three minute song and, and taking that idea and thinking, well, you know, everything that we had at 15, 16 years old, all this wanting to be in a band and all this like desire to be important. We put it into this seven inch record and just overbuilt it because it was just that important. <laughs> well, it's also like amazing how quickly the turnaround is between that seven inch and that first twelve inch. Like that's like the same year, right? Mm, it was a year between the two because we ran out of money when we were recording the How Could Hell. Oh wow! We had we had the money to record the first half of it, and then we said, "Well, we better go." We had to go play some more shows and make some more capital, <laughs> and then Jesus Crop quit, so we had to get Pete Finestone in the band, and a lot of things happened between those two recording periods. Um, and did the public service, did that uh, Smoke 7 comp come out before the first 7-inch? I think so. No, the public service comp came out before the album because we re-recorded those songs while we were recording How Could Hell, if that makes sense. Okay. We took, the, we took, the, we took three songs that we had recorded uh, on the 7-inch and re-recorded them for the public service comp. And is that public service comp kind of trackless? Is that the scene you guys were kind of a part of? Like, would you say that's like representative of like... No. Bad religion fit in or no? 
No, we didn't know any of those guys. They just asked us to do something, and we did it because we would do anything. That's we were just like we just want to do anything. We'll, we'll literally we will do anything. <laughs> oh, I know the but vibe after that, well. You know, after after that, it was you know we we were a little more cautious about stuff that we did because it was like you know we we kind of felt obviously we felt that we were important enough to make our own records, and we and mm. we believed in ourselves enough, and and. You know, then it was like everybody comes. Hey, man, can we get a song? And I'm like, no, no, we're doing our own stuff. You, you go do your thing, and we're doing our thing because we have our friends, and you're not our friends. So, fuck off. <laughs> was it? Yeah. Was there a chip on your shoulders after the fact that like all these labels have turned you down? You've proven that you can do it. So, like, why you don't need these people anymore? Type thing. Was it, when I refer to that, I mean the labels. Um. Kind of, but I don't. But by then, it, I don't think it 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 didn't really matter. Yeah. You know, I, I I don't think we we weren't walking around thinking like we'll show you. It was like we already showed you. We showed you when we made the seven inch, and now we're done with that, and now we're making an album. We, we were just excited to get that out and sort of learning the business of making and marketing a record as well as being the artist and. Uh, it was it was a, a wonderful experimental time of what can we do? What what are we exactly? But we just experimented ourselves right into drugs and that was <laughs> that was not such a great time. No, I could imagine that would be a yeah, decidedly different kind of experience than the joy of making music and creating art. Yeah. Um when you said that like that would come after though, how could hell get any worse when you guys were writing that and working on that? Yeah, I, well, kind of during, I, but you know, I, it's just we were all. I, I'm, I'm always been an alcoholic, drug addict, just as part of my nature, mm-hmm. and so Brett and I were sort of going down that path, which is, I think Brett was a little more open to it than I was in the beginning, but then we were just both like, yeah, this is the greatest thing ever because we're now, you know, we make a hundred dollars when we play a show, and and we get to get super drunk and high, mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, did that leave? Did that lead you to leaving Bad Religion and joining Wasted Youth? No, um, Greg was going. Greg was going to school full time in Wisconsin at this point. He had, well, we, you know, graduated school and went to uh, his first year of university was in Wisconsin. So he would only come back to LA in the summer, mm-hmm. or or maybe like Easter break or whatever. But he would just stay in Wisconsin, and so we we were a band, but we weren't working, and so. When Jeff Long, we were all, everybody in the band, we were all friends. When Jeff Long was leaving Wasted Youth to go start this Africa Corps thing that he wanted to do, they asked me if I wanted to play, and I wasn't doing anything with Bad Religion. I didn't want to quit Bad Religion, but they weren't doing anything because Greg was at school. So I said, sure, I'll play with you guys. So it wasn't it wasn't like a, am quitting Bad Religion to go play with Wasted Youth. I was just playing with Wasted Youth because Bad Religion wasn't playing. I was in both, band, I was in both bands for a couple of years without really any any issue well, a lot of people that i talk to who've come on this podcast talk about how bad religion kind of is the one thing that kind of holds true and like well, when bad religion kind of comes back into the known uh kind of period like throughout that la scene and there's like a decided decline from the first wave of la punk to kind of like the later period when did you see that decline or, or did you see that decline at all like when you're playing in wasted youth like was it around 83 to you or when did it start start changing in the scene yeah, I think around 80, 83, 84, because what was happening was the clubs were sort of 
they weren't letting punk rock shows happen anymore. They were just saying, look, if you're a punk band, don't even ask to play here. So you're getting, you, at, we started off in warehouses and then all of a sudden you sort of get this push and you're actually playing real venues, but then, you know, the, te- the venues are just getting torn apart and getting cars drove, drove through the front door. So it's no doubt that they eventually just say, look, we're not doing this anymore. And uh, a lot of bands that were sort of in that punk fringe learned like, well, if you just grow your hair out and put a lead in, then we're just speed metal. And okay. Uh, and then other bands like us just didn't really know what to do. So uh, TSOL was was in the midst of putting out Beneath the Shadows. And this was Bad Religion's uh, getting into into the unknown because it was looking for a different avenue that wasn't punk because our little circle was sort of getting shut down and we're not going to let you play here. It's like, well, we still want to be a band. Not sure what to do. Um, so that started, that 83 clubs kind of closing down, everything sort of vanishing, a lot of bands getting hooked on drugs and just disappearing. Um that sort of led to people wanting to do something different. Punk rock shows were getting ultra violent. And it was like, I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to be part of the background noise for just, you know, random stabbings in the pit. It just, everything kind of got ugly. So I think most people, most of the bands were just going, I don't know what to do. I don't want, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be this. I, I, I liked what we had. I don't like what we are. And, I think most bands didn't really know what to, what to do. Yeah. Like a lot of scenes, I guess, go through that. Like DC, I guess, goes through the famous revolution summer type thing where you kind of almost outgrow the scene or, or not that you outgrow the scene, but just the scene doesn't reflect what your bands become. Yeah. I mean, there was a, what I, what I remember mostly about what I, what happened was I talk about like this same 120, 200 people that were sort of in the scene that were always around and you could go to a show and black flag show, there'd be 400 people there. And by the winter of 82, spring of 83, you go to a black flag show and there's 3000 people there. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of them are not there to have fun. A lot of them are there just to beat the shit out of people. And you're like, I don't, I'm, I don't want to do that. It was, it was almost like people on the outskirts had learned like, man, you can pay five bucks and go in there and just beat the shit out of people. <laughs> so it was, it, it, the scene had sort of just, exploded into this like hey it's great it's huge but it's terrible because it's huge full of people who aren't really they're not here to support the scene they're just here to fight really mm-hmm. so where did bands like you know cathedral of tears or, or bad religion into the unknown era kind of play like were those were there like new clubs that were kind of springing up was there like a, a attempt to get a new scene kind of going i i mean the last show that i played with bad religion prior to the release of Into the Unknown was at uh, Goleta Valley Community Center, which was up in Santa Barbara. And it was like a, uh, it was a gymnasium for, for kids learning how to be gymnasts <laughs> pretty much. I it was totally crazy. Yeah. Um, and, and it was just a lot of places like that. And so that, the, that show was my last show with Bad Religion Live and my first show with TSOL Live. So I played with both bands that night, and I was like, well, this is a transitional night. This is wow. kind of strange. Uh, but then the, the TSOL thing sort of exploded, and Jack wanted to start Cathedral of Tears. And then that 
would Cathedral of Tears and 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 that became well Tender Fury and other things. Um, they could play like bars because mm-hmm. it was it was more Joy Division-y, more sort of uh, Bauhaus. Yeah, that's a really had, good record, that Cathedral of Tears record. I, I thought so. I mean, I thought that everything that Jack was doing was really good. He, mm-hmm. you know, Jack's Jack's a uh, obviously he's he's a very talented artist, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think Greg Keen is just a fantastic keyboard player, and you know everybody involved were just really Frank Agnew on guitar from the adolescence. Everybody was really really good, but it was just you know it was sort of like nobody really knew what to do or how to do it. Mm-hmm. Was the glam scene kind of like all encompassing? Was it like like sort of this overbearing thing happening in in town at the time? No, that glam scene didn't start happening until 88, 87, okay. 88. So it's, that's still a couple of years away. So what was the predominant scene at that point? Um, there, there wasn't. Yeah. I just, I don't think there was a, a scene really. There just, there was just sort of a, it was almost like the deep breath before, before Motley Crue, before Guns N' Roses, before, uh, you know, before Bad Religion Suffer, it was sort of like, it was almost like Los Angeles was just taking this deep breath and, and, and retro bands were sort of cool. Like bands that sort of, uh, there was a band called Citadel. Okay. Uh, that was Jimmy Ashurst and, um, and, uh, Mark Ford and a bunch of really super talented guys. And they kind of stonesy kind of Rolling Stones. And, and there were other bands like that of their ilk where it was just sort of like, trying to be cool music and they were they, they, i'm not saying trying to be cool they were great but i think the clubs were trying to just get away from aggressive rock mm-hmm. and get more into bluesy whatever that was mm-hmm. so that was what i saw happening um and and that i think the citadel was sort of the the, the precursor to because uh the singer of citadel i can't remember his name but you can look it up uh, he was really charismatic and definitely had like a, a, a Jagger, uh, Tyler vibe. And I always think people saw him and said, that's, that's the guy, that's the guy that's got the, got the stuff. Mm-hmm. So other bands started to come along and they had a little longer hair and they were in a headband and all of a sudden it's like, Oh, are they getting a little more Aerosmith, a little more Aerosmith? And then it was just full blown. Like we're coming out with full kiss makeup. It's like, okay, cool. <laughs> yes, Citadel's like the the proto glam, the proto uh, sunset strip. Kind of, yeah, kind of. I I I thought that they were really sort of just right before everybody sort of grabbed onto this idea of like let's take the the glam idea, let's take Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin and and you know that glammy idea to its next logical extreme, you know, and add some sort of speed metal, heavy metal part into it. So I was like, all right. <laughs> I, I worked at Cat House for a bunch of years, so I was like, "Oh, I saw it all come through." It's like, "Oh, cool." <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because Ricky uh, was just on the show last week, or yeah. last week. So it's just like it's amazing how you know, like uh, to me, being you know, uh, a world away in Toronto, Canada, like that seemed like the antithesis of the hardcore scene, the punk scene that had come before, but really it's like definitely like just one weird mutation outgrowth of it. Yeah. It's just, it's just another nub of it. And Ricky and I were friends before that ever even happened. Ricky and I have been friends since 84. Yeah. You come up on the episode. Yeah. We were, we were, we were friends before any of that. We were in a rockabilly band together. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, you know, it's just like kind of everybody was just kind of fucking around, just doing whatever. Uh, and yeah, it was just a, it was just another another place to be because the Hetson used to come to the Cat House all the time, and so I worked there, and, and other other punk guys that I'd known from that earlier era would come and hang out. So everybody was sort of in everybody's world mm -hmm. for, for like a year. And then, and then there was a definite split on the sunset strip where it was like the punks just said, nah, we're the punks and you guys aren't the punks. And that was the end of that. <laughs> yeah. It feels like, you know, once again, Los Angeles or that whole kind of area is just like a, a huge small town when it comes to music in a lot of ways. It is. And it, and it gets, you know, it, 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 it's pulsating. And that's what I've always really enjoyed about it was, uh, you know, it, it just, it, it, it lives and breathes music. It's, it's a lot of that is going away now because all of the places that were cool because of the venues that were there, the venues are getting torn down to put up condos because people think the area is cool. I go, but you're <laughs> taking away the exact reason why it was cool. Yep. Yep. We've, there's a reoccurring theme here is that punk rock venues are the lichen of gentrification. Like the <laughs> punk rock venues move in and then God help us. The cafes are next. <laughs> When you rejoined Bad Religion, what was kind of the hope at that point? Like, what were you guys thinking? Like, given the the bleakness of L.A., was it that you guys were going to be a band that would just be going international, or or no. like because no, you guys no, are the no, band I, that I, set I, that I, up? No, I I I'd sold all my gear and I was working in a machine shop for my girlfriend's father, and mm. um, I wasn't really even thinking about playing music. And the phone call that I got was actually from Greg Hetson asking if I wanted to play with the circle jerks because Earl Liberty had just quit. And I'm like, sure, I'll come in and play. Oh, wow. but I didn't even own gear. And I went and just got some crap and I went and played this one show, got super drunk. And they're like, you can't be in the circle jerks. You're too drunk. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm the Shane McGowan of the Pokes. I'm too drunk to be in the circle jerks. <laughs> um, <laughs> but after that, uh, you know, because Greg and Greg were still friends, and Greg Hetson was sort of driving Greg to keep Bad Religion going. So Greg called me and said, "Hey, do you want to do you want to play some Bad Religion shows? It's kind of it's okay now." And I didn't. I'm like, "What do you mean okay now?" He's like, "No, like people come and it's cool." And I'm like, "Yeah, I don't want to play any of the keyboard stuff. I'm not interested in any of the unknown stuff." He's like, "No, no, just how could hell in the first EP?" And I said, "Sure." And I went and played, and it was great. I remember that it was like there was. 500 people and everybody was dancing and singing and I go, this is really cool. Mm -hmm. This is really fun. So that was, that was probably 86, mid 86, 80, you know, coming into late 86. And I kept running into Brett cause he had the music studio and, and I was telling him like, dude, we're playing shows. It's great. It's funny. And he's like, yeah, good for you. But he was already busy with West beach and Greg was calling him saying, you should come and play. And then that was when Hetson had a tour with the Circle Jerks and we had a show at Gilman Street. And we said, no, Brett, you have to play. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I don't know. I don't know any of that stuff. I said, no, no, we'll rehearse a couple of times and you can come and play. So he did and he had a great time. And then that was when we all had a good time and said, we should do this again. And that was the beginning of the writing for Suffer. That just It just happened that fast. And so throughout 80 you know throughout the the rest of the year in 87 we were writing every every week having a new song and working on these songs that eventually became suffer so well, like i've saw I, I there's a video i think it's a flip side video of bad religion playing a show um it must be around that same time period like back to the known era where it's just like like, yeah, like hundreds and hundreds of kids. Like, where do you think all these kids came from? Were people just kind of fed up of like 
what was happening or was this a new generation of kids that were just kind of getting into it, uh, you know, after the fact and kind of discovering bad religion? I think it was, it was a little bit of both. It was a little bit of people. It wasn't that far removed year wise where people had aged out. I mean, yeah. I was only, I was 22. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like that, you know, it wasn't like I had forgotten about the bands that I'd seen before. I I'd wanted to go see those bands. They just weren't playing anymore. Yeah. Um, but there was a new a new generation of kids that were coming up through uh i don't i don't know how they were getting there they've just figuring out punk rock was more aggressive than heavy than than glam metal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think every you know I, for me i'm like you know i i like heavy music and so i'm i'm kind of always looking for the heavier end of whatever country western swing i'm listening to <laughs> yeah and um so I think that that was people were getting back into punk rock, and then really what I saw happening was the 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 resurgence of skateboarding in Southern California was bringing more people into the punk rock fold because those two things are just peanut butter and chocolate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where was the melody coming from at this point? Because like you know, Suffer comes out and it changes punk rock everywhere forever. Like where were where was like, you know, that year that you're kind of building up to writing that record, like, were you guys already kind of playing with melody and the stuff you guys were writing? Cause it's definitely, you know, decidedly more melodic than what came before. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the final amalgamation of what this band came in with its individual uh, styles. It finally gelled like Brett's a huge Ramones fan, but I'm a huge clash fan. Mm-hmm. And I don't like to play like Dee Dee Ramone. I mm-hmm. like to play like Paul Simonon. But if Brett writes a song that's like the Ramones and I add a bass line that is more than just downstrokes, suddenly there's a song. The, 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 the melody, the singing, the one, the, the one artist that we all agree on is Elvis Costello. Oh, wow. Okay. Like, like we all will say like, what's one band that you all agree on? Elvis Costello. So when it comes to singing and delivery and, and background vocals, obviously we stole them from the adolescents, but bringing in Elvis Costello's sort of delivery, pitch, anger, um, prose, the germs were obviously vocal, uh, lyrically a big part of what we do, not vocally, because fucking Darby. <laughs> um, but I think that all of those things finally gelled into Bad Religion becoming what we really are which mm-hmm. is a band of a bunch of different ideas coming together to make this one band instead of a you know we never thought like we're going to be like black flag or we're going to be like elvis costello i did want to be like the jam i did but but those guys didn't but i didn't care i was everything that i did was going to be bruce foxton <laughs> <laughs> and and i and i think that like that finally just reached its point where we were we were doing our own parts together. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also funny because Elvis Costello and, and Bad Religion are both bands where they're very much like auteur bands, where it sounds like Bad Religion's like a like a Voltron band. I guess. I mean, it's it's part of this is is you know obviously uh, Brett and Greg are are amazing songwriters mm-hmm. and. The other part of it is the ability to take these songs at that time and sort of demolish them and rebuild them into whatever this this band idea was. 
um, it, it was, it was just magic. I, I wish I could go like, yeah, it was all thought out. It was really, you know, we really spent a lot of time figuring all this out. And I can tell you, we did not, we just, it just was happening. Whatever it was, it was just happening. And we recognized it happening and we appreciated it happening. And we, and we definitely duct taped ourselves to it yeah. and said, this is us. But we didn't know how it was happening. So we were just like, okay, whatever. It's just happening. Well, yeah, because then begins like kind of like one after another of just like unbelievable. Like you guys are crushing like incredible songs at an enormous rate year after year from this point on. Yeah. I think we were putting out an album every 18 months. It's wild too. And they're all like, you know, for, for my mind, like classics. Like it's really like. To have that many, you know, consistent records in a row is just like, you know, it's kind of unheard of of a band to do that. I I wouldn't know. I haven't I haven't really been in another band like this. <laughs> you know, I, wasted I, youth wasn't like this. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the thing about all the other bands that I was ever in, I was never on any recordings. And yeah. I, you know, I, I seem to like slide in between the recordings and just sort of <laughs> fill in for people, which is fine. But you know, the the bad religion thing was. Uh, I think it was a lot of Brett and Greg being musically competitive and, and, you know, Brett saying, here's my song. And Greg will go, oh, yeah, here's my song. And so they were playing this sort of tennis match to all of our benefits. Like they would just be writing songs against each other and it'd be like, this is great. <laughs> Every time we'd go to rehearsal, there's two new songs. It's like, check out my new song. Oh, yeah, check out my new song. It's like, oh. <laughs> Uh, going back to those other bands that you were in, did you guys demo at all during those periods? Like, did you did you record any stuff that didn't come out? I, I did stuff with Wasted Youth that didn't come out that probably ended up on Get Off My Lawn. I did a lot of early nascent recordings in uh, in Jack's Garage, just because I at that point that that band that didn't even have a name yet was we were trying to get our feet and figure out what the hell we were going to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, but none of that would have ever seen the light of day intentionally. Mm -hmm. Well, going back now to Bad Religion, what was the reaction like or what was the reception like to Suffer when it first came out? Not much. Really? No. But, I, you know, I don't, I, you know, even when we were making the record, we kind of knew that the scene wasn't there anymore. It wasn't what it was. And, and, and we could we could try to put out this record and, and we didn't think that we would sell any. Mm -hmm. I, you know, we, we went out on tour. The tour started before the record was done. I think we were, we started in, in Texas. And by the time we got to New York city, we got a box of records. We're like, Oh my God, they're here. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and strangely there was people at CB's to come see the show. Mm hmm. And it was great. I mean, we played with Underdog and Token Entry, so obviously it was their big deal. But people were excited to see Bad Religion. What a and, show! That, and we know. had the records to sell people. We so you know we were kind of selling these Suffer records, playing Suffer songs, and people bought them. But I wasn't there to hear them when they went home and listened to it, so I don't know. Yeah. yeah. What I do know is that when when that year was over, uh, Maximum Rock and Roll and Flipside had both put Suffer on the cover of their magazine and said, "This is the album of the year." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it wasn't you know it 
there was nothing to us that said it was the album of the year. Like there was never like a groundswell of like, oh my god, this is happening, guys. It, there was there wasn't any of that. Yeah. Who were you playing with on that tour? Like, what kind of bands in, in the cities? Because as you're saying, like, we were on tour with we we brought L7 with us. Oh, what an amazing tour! So it was Bad Religion and L7 because because the truth be told, L7 was the first band that had a physical record on Epitaph. Yeah, because up until that, uh, Brett had just been sort of doing a P and D deal with Caroline. I think it was Caroline. Uh, so signing bands and producing the records and then giving them to to Caroline, I think. So once that deal was done, it might have been Green World. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, when he when he decided to become a, a physical label, L7 was his first band. So so Batterism and L7 were label mates, and we went on the road together. Well, well like going around the country at that point, like – what were like the shows like that you're playing to? Were there like a scene in each of these places or? I mean, we like, like, okay. CB's was sold out and it was yeah. great, but that was obviously CB's. a big local show. <laughs> and it was, uh, I, you know, we played a show in, in Detroit for, I think two people. <laughs> Shit. Um, I've been there too. Know, we, we played a show. I'm, I'm pretty sure we played a show in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where the people that came, came to be mad at us. They came to be mad about Into the Unknown and just yelled the entire night about how much we sucked because we made Into the Unknown. And we're like, but the, oh, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it wasn't a great tour. Yeah. I, I'll admit that I cried. Um, you know, I sat on the side of the room and said, I'm so hungry. <laughs> um, yeah. And when, we, and when we got home, at the end of that tour, we'd taken the Circle Jerks van out around the country and we got home and each of us owed $1,000. And Holy. we said, we're never doing this again. We're never, ever, 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 ever doing this again. This was the dumbest thing we've ever done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so getting uh, back to sort of like, you know, when, when things do start taking off for the band, like wh when did you feel that the scene, there was a scene coming, like that this was something that you were going to do again? When we went to Europe. Okay. Yeah, when we went to Europe later that year, because you know we, there was a promoter in in Germany that kept calling us, and uh, he said, "You need to come to Germany. Like this, your record is very important here." And we're like, "What are you talking about? You're crazy and dumb. Stop calling us." <laughs> but he wouldn't stop calling us, and he kept saying, "Like, no, you don't understand. Like, people love your record," and none of that made any sense. And I don't, still to this day, don't know how. He co he convinced us to get on a plane. Uh, we all had to go get passports. And we're like, we're flying to Germany. Are we out of our minds? And we did. We flew to fucking Germany. And uh, our first show was in Amsterdam. And it was okay. It was like, oh, this is kind of cool in Amsterdam. Everybody's high. <laughs> and then we went into this little town in Germany, Essen, Germany. Mm -hmm. And there was like 5,000 people all singing the Suffer songs. All super super into it and it's like i've i didn't even know this was possible and that was the beginning that was the beginning of of bad religion sort of just going to europe because that seemed to be where our market was mm -hmm. was there a separate european pressing like that you know like how no. did that record get so distributed I, out there to, to this day i still have no idea i mean obviously brett was brett was selling them to uh distributors who were sending them all around the world 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, once, once they got out of our hands, we don't know where they really went. So obviously people were getting them in Europe Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, it was, it was just a, it just changed everything about what we did. And so for the next few tours, what we would do is we would sort of tour up and down the West coast, like maybe San Francisco down to San Diego and, and maybe go to Phoenix and then just fly across the country, play the Eastern seaboard and then just go to Europe. And that was our touring cycle for three, in the next three years. It's amazing also how much that record impacted all of Europe. Like, you know, talking to the people from Sweden, like, you know, like how much suffer changed Swedish hardcore. Like it, it totally, you know, like invented a um, melodic Swedish hardcore from that record coming, kind of coming out. Yeah, I, none of us had any idea. And that was yeah. sort of the, every time we would go somewhere, people would talk about that. And we're like, I don't, it, what, what's that? There's a, there's a, there's a documentary on HBO or something called Finding Sugarman. Do you, have you ever seen that yeah, or not? I'm talking about? Yeah, great documentary. It, it, it's almost kind of like that where it's like, we had no idea that we were popular in Italy. How would we ever know that? <laughs> yeah. You know, you're just rolling into these little towns and there's all these kids <laughs> wearing homemade bad religion shirts. You're like, these guys are wearing homemade bad religions. This is great. <laughs> um, is it true that there was a, a buyback or a trade-in thing with the Into the Unknown record? No. Okay, that was an urban legend, I guess. What, what was the urban legend? I'd like to know. That, uh, that you could bring an Into the Unknown record and that you could, get, uh, you could trade it for a, a different bad religion record. No, no. It'd be very lucrative I, if you did that. Honestly, but look, I, I think that – I think – um, here's here's our folk our, our folk tale that, that we always like to tell. We printed ten thousand into the unknowns and got ten thousand and one returns. <laughs> That's how bad the record was. <laughs> um, but I, I you know I think that by the time by the time we were doing no control into the unknown had just basically gone into more garbage cans and more used record stores. And they were just sort of gone. People weren't clinging onto them to show us later, like, look what you made me do. It's like, oh. They were just sort of, it was over and they were gone. Do you think, like, I know you don't play on that record, but do you think people are overly harsh on it? I don't think it's a bad record at all. Uh, I don't think they're overly harsh on it. I think that the time, the, the, the harshness for the time was probably appropriate mm-hmm. because it was like, if, if as, as punk rock was sort of withering away in in la and one of its punk rock bands was like here's our new record and it's not punk at all it's like oh fuck man we kind of needed you to not do this (laughs) (laughs) yeah i can i can get that i can get the betrayal on that level that yeah i I, I think it i think it just sort of let people down it's like man if there's one band that needs to do a punk rock album you guys didn't do it yeah yeah um so you know when did you think it changed in North America? Was it like post Nirvana or is it already happening for you guys before that happens or? Uh, probably by, by 91, I think it, you know, obviously it was, it was always building and it was always, uh, it was always getting bigger Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, it was still a lot of fun and we could still go places and play shows. And now we would, you know, we'd venture into Chicago and maybe go down to Florida and open up these markets where people would come. Uh, but 
90, I think after Against the Grain and probably like as we were beginning to record Generator, we got a phone call uh, from Golden Voice, which is a promoter in Los Angeles. And they asked us, they said, do you guys want to come and play the Palladium opening for Dramarama? Right, okay, Dramarama, no, it's Dramarama and the Dead Milkman. Oh, yeah, okay, we'll come and, we'll come and open that show. Mm-hmm. So we've already got Suffer, No Control, and Against the Grain out. And we're going to go play at the Palladium because this is still a big show for us. So that goes to show where, our, where we were at. Yeah. And so we're the opening band on this bill. And we go and, you know, doors are at seven. We play at eight. There's a line around the building. We play. A lot of people leave. And a lot of people that were in the line were pissed and left. And, and we don't know what's happening. And, and the promoter, who's a friend of ours, the Golden Boys guys, Coming says, like, the weirdest thing just happened. You guys played and so many people left, and they're really mad. They wanted to see you. Yeah. And so he said, next time you guys can headline the show. So we went from opening a show to headlining the show in the same night. Um, <laughs> and that was the beginning of us sort of saying, oh, now we'd been making calls up until that point. We're calling everybody. We're calling everybody. Hey, can we play the show? The Ramones are coming to town. Can we play for free? We'll open for them for free. We were just always hustling. And so this was the first time our phone rang and someone said, hey, you guys want to do something? Like, yeah, we do. It's wild, too, because you're already being bootlegged at this point, too, right? There's like three or four bad religion bootlegs from like 89. Like there was already such a cult for you guys, but yet there's still, you know, it's not there in America for another few years. It's just, it's just not quite there yet. Yeah. And I, I, I go back to what I said before. I think, you know, this, this, there, was, there was a resurgence of skateboarding and then there was an explosion of sort of this alternative games where it's like, you know, just motocross and skateboarding and the whole like Southern California lifestyle was, was, Everything and the invention of the Sony Handycam. So now all of a sudden there's all of these little homemade skateboard movies that happen to have Bad Religion as the as the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That all helped us. Uh, well, I've kept you way too long, given the fact that I was also late for this. Uh, but no, at, some, I got at some point... Now we're, now we're halfway there. We're halfway there. <laughs> I was going to say, at some point, Jay, would you come back for a part two in the future? Oh, for sure. This has been... Awesome. I really, really appreciate it. Like, thank you for, for everything, but uh, thank you for coming on this podcast. Sure. No worries. It was great. I get to, I get to trip down memory lane. (laughs) Thank you, Jay, for coming on the show and Jay will be back for a part two and Jay will be in Las Vegas for cycle Las Vegas this weekend. So head out to, uh, the Mandalay Bay Casino in Las Vegas. Kick your feet up and get ready for some rock and roll. You know, that's, I wish I was there. I really wish I was going to be there this weekend, but I'm here. I'm here putting together podcasts for you and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do it. That's what I do around here. You know, just joyfully, uh, assemble podcasts. Uh, Speaking of assembling podcasts next week, we are going to assemble a doozy for you next week on the show. One of the goats, one of the the legitimate all-time bonafide goats. Kid 
Congo Powers is on the show next week. Someone who played in the Gun Club, someone who played in the Cramps, someone that was in the the Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, someone that's a, a legend, someone that was there from its inception. It's an incredible conversation. There's a lot of great stories, a lot of stories about bands that I ask people about, and very few people are able to to give me any sort of uh, uh, any sort of thing back on some of these bands, but kid, kid nails them all, man. We, we talk nerves. We talk screamers. We talk Zolar X. Woo. I am so excited for you to hear this one. That is next week on the show. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you everyone for supporting the Patreon that is taking the time out to go over there and check out the Patreon. Uh, and that's it. Go out there and make your own culture. Tell all your friends, uh, sign your organ donor cards, and I will see you next week. Bye.